Welcome to The Workplace, where we talk about the cultures we work in and how to make them better for everyone. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Malin Harris from HEB about keeping your culture compassionate in the middle of a crisis and how the grocery chain has embraced its place as a first responder in their home state of Texas. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Mayland Harris is the Group Vice President of Talent for the supermarket chain HEB, where she leads the talent development and talent acquisition teams, not to mention heading up their disaster relief efforts. If you haven't heard of HEB, you probably haven't been to Texas, as they have over 340 locations across the state and northern Mexico. They're on the 2021 Glassdoor Best Places to Work list and have one of the highest average employee tenures in the industry. Maylin was interviewed by me, and what struck me most about our conversation was her fearlessness when tackling difficult questions and issues. From unconscious bias to mask mandates to the practicalities of conscious capitalism, Maylin is always thoughtful. You'll see. Let's get to it. Mayland, welcome to the workplace. Nice to be here. So I'd like to begin with beginnings. What was your first job? And do you remember what it was like to work there? Actually, I do. My very first job was working at Mervyn's Department Store, which is actually no longer in business, but it was kind of like a Coles. So they had every hmm. department. I was in women's sportswear, and um, I worked a lot of time in the fitting room. A lot of time picking up clothes off the floor, and I know how to fold a shirt perfectly because of the, the tables and tables of shirts that I fold. I worked there for six years, so uh, two years through high school and all four years of college. Oh, wow. Full-time college and full-time job? Yes, that was one of two jobs that I had while I was going to college, and uh, so, yeah, quite a, quite a hectic schedule. What was it like... Working at, uh, what was it again? Uh, Mervyn's. Mervyn's, that's right. Do, do you feel like you had a sense of the culture back then? I'm sure you probably weren't thinking about workplace culture when you were working there. But looking back. I'm not sure how they created it, but I really felt like I was a part of a family there. And uh, all of my coworkers were friends, and we were all different. So I was, you know, actually I was 15 when I started working there. And um, even though I worked with ladies maybe who were 60 years old at the time I was 15, we all talked about the same things. We were all um, in it to win it, in it together. Um, most of us did not like our managers. So that was something that <laughs> helped us kind of bond together. And oh, no, I that's not how you want the culture to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all bonded over how bad it was. <laughs> yeah, we all bonded over how much we didn't like her and how it wasn't fair. But we enjoyed uh, each other, and I learned a lot. So I just felt like it was a very close-knit family, and you'd go there, and you'd do what you had to get done and, and talk while you were getting it done. Hmm. It's interesting how a great culture can develop even though a manager maybe isn't so great, right? That's exactly right. I think people find a way to survive, and a lot of times uh, you bind together and become closer because um, you have a common enemy, perhaps. 
Well, I don't think that's the recommended way to build a workplace <laughs> culture, but it's uh, it's interesting. Maybe we're going to have to delve into that at a later uh, in a later episode. So you said you you worked through high school, you worked through college there. Now you went to school for business, uh, once for a bachelor's and again for a master's. But uh, where did your interest in HR start? Was it in school, or did it develop later uh, as you were in the workforce? It developed much later. I don't, I'm not even sure when I was in school, I knew what an HR professional would do or even consider it. Um, I was kind of brought up that you go to business. If you're not really sure what you want to do, you just get a business degree and figure it out. And my first job right out of college was working for HEB, and I started in their management training program. And maybe not for the best of reasons, what was a good reason at the time, uh, they actually offered me the highest salary. And that's why I went with them. There wasn't a lot of research. I had lots of job offers and they offered me the most. I said, okay, that's where I'm going. And um, so I've grown up um, at HEB and it was in store operations uh, for eight years, actually, before I developed my interest in human resources. And even then, I'm going to say it was probably by happenstance, some people kept telling me, you would be great in HR. Have you ever thought about being in HR? And from being an operator, HR, where they were kind of like the, the evil police, you know, no one wanted to be a part of <laughs> HR. It's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be an HR. And they go, oh, you would be so good. After I started learning more about what it was and people start saying, you know, you're really good with people, you know how to give. Uh, the really bad part it was is that you're the best terminator that we've ever seen. But you can actually <laughs> bring someone in, terminate them, and they hug you at the end and thank you for the opportunity. And so we've never seen anyone be able to terminate someone and them still feel good about it. And I, I just had a knack for being very straightforward, but then treating people with respect and being honest and explaining what happened, but saying, you're a good person. This doesn't define you, but you're just not going to be able to work here anymore. And maybe your next job, you'll do better. From that, when an HR role became available, I, it was posted. I, I, I posted for it and interviewed for it. I'm still not really sure... But I was getting to 100%. I got the role. And I can tell you, honestly, from like the first week, I was like a fish to water. And everything that people thought was so difficult, I'm like, this is not hard. Just talk to people. Just, you know, get to the bottom of it. And things that um, were, were very, um, that maybe I had to work hard at being an operator. Uh, those things were gone. And the things that came naturally to me just flowed. And I didn't have a lot of technical expertise but I knew the business and I knew our policies and procedures and I knew how to talk to people. And that foundation of, of credibility helped me to learn and continue to grow relationships. I, I do hope that that title is on your resume still, Terminator. <laughs> no, I actually never wrote it that way. It was just partner relations. That's what they call it, or employee relations. So you fell in love with HR. Um, What's something you love about being in HR that people who haven't worked in it might not expect? I think the one thing that people don't recognize is how much we're called on to be social workers, counselors, psychiatrists. Um, and that's for the people that we're talking to that may be going through something personally difficult and also leaders. So um, people have a really hard time holding their employees accountable, having those tough conversations. And sometimes they just want to talk it out and they just want, you know, to have someone listen to how they feel about the situation and their apprehensions around it. And it's the same thing if you're talking to someone maybe who 
is in a pickle themselves. Uh, they, everyone has a story. Everyone wants to feel heard. And um, our work life is so entangled with our, our beliefs and our understandings around ourselves and our identity that when you're talking about work things, eventually you end up talking about how you perceive the world and how, what your place is in the world. And it's, it's a really interesting position to be in, to be talking about work things, but inevitably in every conversation, it comes, comes personal to how this situation is impacting them as a person, not just a leader or an employee. It's a lot of emotional labor, isn't it? It is. And um, having that insight to help people work through an issue that they cannot maybe articulate well themselves and that you can help them articulate it. So if they talk to you, so it sounds like what you're saying is you don't really want to have, do this job anymore. And they may not in their own accord realize that's what they were saying. But if you listen well enough and ask enough questions, that's why I feel like the counselor, you know, something that if you were going to visit your therapist, the questions they would ask you, because most of the time the people have the answers within themselves. They just either want permission to do it or they don't know how to articulate it well to where other people can understand what their, um, what their desires really are. And I think a big part of what we do is listen really well, share the person, this is what I heard you say, is that right? And allow that person to kind of develop whatever um, insight they have on their own. And isn't that kind of what a therapist does? Mm-hmm. Maybe that should be on your resume. <laughs> That's my next career after I retire. <laughs> <laughs> it's not retiring if you keep working, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's been a hell of a year. How has the culture at uh, HEB evolved over this last year? I would say the remote working from home was a nice surprise. So, you know, we're an older company, over 115 years old, and there was really a lot of resistance to let people work from home. Even part-time or even a day or here, it was a more like, a, you know, butts and seats, it, it felt like, you know, regardless, mm -hmm. we need to see you here till this time to that time. And a lot, a lack of trust, maybe. That's the way I took it, a lack of trust of leaders to be able to manage people or to know, um, you know, is, are my employees working? You know, if, if I don't see them, um, I've always come from a different place. So my team has worked remotely for at least 10 years now. And oh, wow. um, I was like the lone wolf. You're like, how can you do it? And say, if you're, if you're a really good leader, you should know if your team is producing, whether you look at them or not. And I can tell you a whole lot of people are sitting at their desks at work on Facebook and, and shopping. So just because you're sitting there doesn't mean you're working. I can tell you, though, this experience has really strengthened people's faith that I can manage people remotely. People, uh, for the most part, are going to work even more hours and harder for you when they're working from home. And then there's always that percentage of person that wasn't going to give you the full amount of work, but that person was doing that even when they were sitting in the office. So um, it's opened our eyes to a whole new way of working to be a lot more efficient. Um, I, I currently live in San Antonio, and I, I moved here um, right before COVID. So my whole time in, in, in this city, I've pretty much been working at home, but previously I was in San Antonio. I mean, I was in Houston and uh, I had to fly to San Antonio two to three times a week. Oh man. I know that sounds crazy. And I look back on it, but I literally two to three times a week, back and forth between Houston and San Antonio because every meeting had to be in person. Every meeting was so substantial that you couldn't have it over Zoom or over the phone. Malin, you have to come 
and most people were in San Antonio, so it was always just me coming up. And I look back on that now and I see all the really serious and difficult conversations that we've had over Zoom that we would have never believed we could have done. And so I think it's really opened up the freedom of it doesn't have to be face-to-face to be, it doesn't have to be in person for it to be face-to-face. And the yeah. other remarkable thing is I've actually had more screen time or face-to-face time with people than I would have ever had previously because of Zoom. Now, Zoom is, you know, an angel and a devil within itself. Even though we've had Zoom capability or Skype or whatever for, for years, we'd always just pick up the phone. And now most things are on video and it, you do get an extra sense of that person's, you know, what they're trying to communicate to you with the nonverbals, something you just can't get over the phone. And so uh, even people who live in the same city now still do a lot of Zoom. So I feel like we've become more personable. We've actually become more um, connected with everyone on the team. Because even if you lived in the same city, you might have people in another building. And so they still wouldn't walk over. But now I can, in a five minutes, saying, hey, do you want to hop on a Zoom? And I can be looking at someone on my team where I probably wouldn't have done that if we were in the office or if they were like down the hall. So mm-hmm. I, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of drawbacks to Zoom, but I think it's actually improved our culture and our connectivity with one another. And of course, the cool thing is, is you get to see everyone's kids, <laughs> get to see everyone's pets, <laughs> everyone's home and what looks like and you actually feel like you're you're integrating with someone's family more than we were before and of keeping things so separate. What about the employees who have to be on site? How has the culture changed for them and how have you uh, helped facilitate that? So um, what's been more difficult for them really is dealing with the customer. So you might remember when all this went down art um, there really weren't any clear guidelines up front for masks or not. And HEB came out up front, said, look, we're going to and you know make it mandatory for customers to wear masks and mandatory for partners to wear masks. And and, and at that time, that was not a popular decision. Oh, not so, back in March. Yeah, I mean, customers were, you know, this is Texas. <laughs> so customers were like, it's a hoax. I'm not sure why you, you want me to wear a mask. And partners were having to take the brunt of that. So one thing that we did is we really went and lobbied a lot of our legislators at the Capitol and said, you really have to mandate this because we can't be the ones saying it. If they, if the customers know that it's not legally mandatory, that it's just HEB saying it, or it's just this one partner. I mean, we had partners get spit on. We had partners who uh, customers pulled guns on them just because they said, no. you know, sir, will you please put your mask on before you enter? Um, it was a very hostile environment. And then um, we're also one of the first retailers that created those plexiglass dividers that we put up between the checks. So I think our partners really felt like we did all that we could to support them. And that actually um, binded them closer to our culture. And then, we, of course, we did a lot of things, I think, above and beyond what some companies did is just as far as around communication. Every single time there was a positive case, we made sure that we did the contact tracing right away. We talked to the partners uh, personally. Um, if you thought you were may have been in jeopardy of catching it. We would pay you for the time that you were off while you took the test and got the results back. And of course, we're positive. We would pay you for the time that you were off and tried to be very, very flexible, but also very, very transparent. Um, we had um, any partner that was over the age of 65 that just did not feel comfortable with working in a store environment because of everything. We found them jobs where they did not have to be customer facing out of a store, like either from home or at our office. 
And the same for all of our um, expectant moms, because at that time it was really uncertain, you know, how would this impact the pregnancy? And so all those things we did like right away. And I think the partners felt like we were actually doing more than what the government was doing, was doing more than what the mandates were. And we always said our partners are going to come first. And then I think in turn, customers saw that and they felt comfortable with coming into the store and shopping. The worst part, I think the most negative part that I've heard from partners that work in the store is um, the inability to hug, the inability to shake someone's hand, get close to someone. And, um, and of course, if you're eating lunch, uh, you know, it's real difficult to take your mask off and then chills try to, so all of those things, but those were all the communal activities where people got connected and they could relax and talk to each other. And so even now it's hard when you go in the store because I used to just hug every partner that I would see. And now you're like, I want to give you a hug, but you know, <laughs> I raise my fist to you, we'll bump elbows or, or something like that. But in, and that still seems awkward. You know, this is, you know, Texas is still in the South. So we're real, you know, that Southern feel that you want to hug and, and, and shake everyone's hand. And that is still a, an awkward, an awkwardness that we have, but everyone's trying hard to stay safe. So HEB has incredible tenure among its employees, uh, many staying for 20, 30 years, uh, yourself included. Is long-term retention a sure sign of great workplace culture or are there other signals that you look for, maybe better signals when you're trying to measure your uh, cultural health? Yeah, we do not look at long tenure as a measurement of the culture. I can tell you've done a, a, looked a lot at it and, and you can probably look at this a different in several different ways, but uh, over the years when we look at uh, engagement scores, um, some of our lowest engagement scores actually come from our longest tenured employees. And this is the way that we've, we've come to understand it is that if you're new to HEB and you've worked in other companies before, uh, this is like a heaven place to come to. You're, and so the partner's like, oh my gosh, they treat me so well. I, I get paid well. Everyone treats me with respect. Um, our older partners remember a time where Charles Butt himself made stores every week. And we had company picnics and things were a lot more relaxed as far as bring your whole family to the company picnic. You know, now we have 120,000 partners and some stores have 500 people. A lot of the things that we used to do that were, that people loved, we just aren't able to do anymore. And they see us growing into a larger company, but remembering how it felt to be a smaller company. So, and, and they, and they also have higher expectations. So, Longer-term partners can be somewhat more paternalistic because we really do think about everything that we can do to take care of the partner, whether it's work-related or it's with your family, it's with your personal finances. We want to try to take care of the whole partner. And so longer-term partners expect that. And so anything that doesn't 100% go that way, they're disappointed. The expectations where we have newer partners, where they've worked somewhere else and they know that this is something very special, they rank us much higher. So, and we always have a really big mix of long-term and short-term partners. If you think about it in the stores, we have lots of turnover. So when you look at part, you know, if you're working in a grocery store, a lot of time it's your first time job, 16 years old, you might be a carry out, lots of turnover at that ranks. Once you become a manager and you go up, that's where you see a lot more tenure. So that mix is always available in the stores. People who've been with us six months, people who've been with us, you know, 30 years. 
Um, so what we really try to look at is, um, one, and this may sound kind of crazy, but it's, it's store visits. So our, re, our HR managers, we expect them to be out in the stores 80% of the time. And that's another reason why it was really easy for me to have my, lead, my team work from home. Because if you're supposed to be in stores 80% of the time, you're only supposed to be in the office 20% of the time. And we really have a way of gauging those store walks with leadership to tell the pulse of the partner what's happening, how are they feeling. And, um, you know, I can walk with a top store leader and within 15 minutes can tell you what type of leader he or she is and how their partners feel about them by the way their partners react to them as we walk. And uh, I've told leaders this before. It's like I give you the test, uh, the answers to the test, but you can walk with a leader through the store. They know you're the HR person, walk with the leader. And there are some partners who will run up to you and run up to the leader and start talking and conversing. Very, very natural. And there's other stores you go into, you walk with that leader and everyone puts their head down and turns their back when you walk by. And it's very clear. It's very, very clear that no one wants to talk to you or the leader. And, um, and so we make, we make those assessments. And that's where we start digging. So, I mean, really and truly, it sounds crazy, but you can get the feel of a store of how partners react as you walk through, how open they are to first. Um, and then, of course, we have engagement surveys. And we look at that. And that also um, helps us detect some issues that maybe um, we were un, unaware of. And another way, it sounds crazy, but I'll tell you, so I do a lot of interviewing and we always tell candidates, hey, if you're interested, if you're not familiar with HEB, um, just go as a customer, go into any store, pick a store, um, one near your house or, or whatever, and um, just start talking to the employees and ask them, how do they like working here? Don't tell them that you're interviewing. Don't tell them, you know, what your role is. And then I asked the candidates, what did they say? And mm. it, it, it may seem like a, it's not like, it's not a rigorous sample size by any means, but that is very telling. What will a person tell a stranger about how they feel about their job? Um, we also look very closely at, at platforms like Glassdoor, where you know our partners can go out there and rate us on their own, you know, without um, us, you know, prompting them to in any way. And we put all of that together and and really tries to help us determine what do we think the culture is. And of course, we're looking at places where the culture is not strong or where leadership is not showing up well, we can go in and, you know, rectify those situations. I really like those in-person litmus tests for culture. You, you can't fake that data. Yeah. So speaking of the hiring process, I know you've done a lot of work trying to address bias in the hiring process. Um, what do you think are the most important things to keep in mind when you're trying to build that bias-free hiring process? What have you learned in, in your time? Well, the one thing I learned is you can't train bias out of people. And we all are biased to whether we want to be or not. And so the best way to mitigate the bias is to ensure that you have a very structured interview process that takes out as much of the discretion or gut decisions as possible. I still feel like it's impossible to do it 100% because we're human. But um, when I say a structured interview process, it's one to where um, we have trained, consistent interviewers that are responsible for a certain section um, of the interview questions. And they're, and they're repeatable with those, same, with those same questions. So if we have three different parts of the interview, 
this leader will always ask this part of the question. Second leader will always ask their set, third leader, and then a really strong calibration where they've scored independently. And then when you come together, you can discuss it, but you're not discussing to change the other person's um, view of it because they asked a separate set of questions. So everybody's set is pure to themselves. And, um, and then you calibrate with uh, the weighting on the ones that you feel like are most important for that job. What's uh, hard about that is it's really hard to have the same consistent interviewers because there's so many different roles and you're constantly having to switch people out or just because of the volume, it's hard to make that happen. But um, we are um, also looking into, um, we're switching up our, our recruiting system, the one that has some artificial intelligence mechanisms to even help as we go through and we look at candidates, but those resumes come to the top that we're ensuring that we're not negatively, you know, unintentionally um, marginalizing any um, underrepresented. When you put these guidelines, these processes in place, a lot of times, and I think you even mentioned this, what you're sacrificing is discretion and autonomy from the people doing the hiring. These are things that people normally associate as good things, part of a, a healthy workplace culture. But sacrifices must be made in the name of progress. Um, but how do you figure out where to draw that line? Or maybe more importantly, how do you communicate the need for these processes to people who may think that uh, you're sort of taking things away from them or not trusting them even? Yeah, it, it, this is the difficult part. And we're still working through it. I'm not saying by any means we've, we've reached it. Um, this is the part where education and training, I think, really can play a role. You first have to believe that you can't trust yourself. And that's hard. You first have to believe that. So how do you get people to believe that they can't trust themselves? There, I mean, there's lots of, of research that shows how our brains work, how we formulate opinions. And, um, and, and I'm trying really hard to do that in a way where it doesn't make you feel like you're a bad person. Um, I'm not saying that you're racist. I'm not saying that you know anything. I'm saying we all have biases. And most of the time, the biases are uh, manifest themselves in a negative impression of someone who is different from ourselves. So we tend to like people that are more like ourselves. And that's not just in gender and ethnicity. That's in personality, how they mm -hmm. talk, maybe background. Uh, we both went to the same university. Even hobbies. All, yeah, all kinds of things. Okay? And so, um, and that's a lot of times. So we, we do, we are trying a really strong education on, let's talk about where these um, beliefs, um, impressions come from, and then just believe that you cannot think your way out of it. So the, the best analogy that I love to use is like a rear view mirror. So we all drive. We all know that we have the rear view mirror. You can look in the rear view mirror to see or even your mirrors on the side to see your blind spot, right? But still, before you switch lanes, you still look over your shoulder. You do not 100% rely on the mirrors because you still might be missing one little part. So that's the part that you, you, it's not possible for you to see it. You can look in all three of your mirrors all around and you still will miss the car that's in your blind spot. That's not your fault. It's not that you're not looking. It's not that you're not smart. It's not that, you know, it is just, it is what it is. And until you can recognize that you cannot mitigate that blind spot, there's nothing mm -hmm. you can do 
you have to put processes in place. And so in driving, the process is look over your shoulder every time. And you do that every time. Um, these processes, we have to use this every time. And we cannot rely upon our, our gut or our impressions because our impressions are naturally flawed. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's not, you know, and, and, and reiterating that. And then, of course, um, a lot of people, if you can show them some good research and some good um, statistics on how this happens and how it shows up, I mean, you know, there's countless um, studies that have been done from all different, like, that shows how these things can play and we're totally unaware of. And, um, and even then, uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of a stick that says, okay, you still don't believe it? Well, this is the process we're going to use anyway. <laughs> so... We're not going to yeah. be able to work through it until you do this process. And that's not the way you want to do it. But um, unfortunately, you have to sometimes just say, this is the way it's going to be. Hmm. Uh, I actually just learned a new term for that, that blind spot uh, metaphor. I was listening to an episode of Hidden Brain, the podcast with uh, Shankar Vedantam, if you've heard of it. I have. Um, and he was talking to a psychologist uh, a researcher and brought up the idea of introspection illusion, which is basically what you're talking about, where people think wrongly that they know why they make the decisions that they do. When in reality, in controlled, in controlled experiments, none of us can really explain our own thought process. The more we look inward, the less we see, which seems to be making an argument similar to yours, which is as much as you can train people, you need to put those rules, those processes, those guardrails in mm -hmm. place so that when we're not, when we have those blind spots, we still know to look over our shoulders. Right. You still can't trust it. That mm -hmm. I love that. That actually sounds a whole lot more impressive than what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a, like a clinical psycho, uh, <laughs> psychology term and yeah, but I just, I, I, I love uh, introducing new terms on this podcast as much as possible. So that was this episode's term, introspection, illusion. Uh, I hate to recommend another podcast, but go check out Hidden Brain. Why hey, not? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> totally different. You heard it here first. Matter, so yeah, yeah, first. <laughs> this little podcast I heard of called Hidden Brain. <laughs> so most people wouldn't normally think of a grocery chain in the same realm as a firefighter or an EMT, but HEB is one of Texas's first responders. What made the company want to take on that mantle, and what are the resources you have on hand to, you know, be a first responder and help out the community in times of crisis? You know, I don't think it was an intentional desire. Um, we've always had a mantra that we want to make the lives of Texans better. And um, if not us, then who? I mean, we're in a very unique position. We've got stores, all our, and a network of stores and a, and a network of um, distribution all throughout the state of Texas. And as you know, FEMA has not always come through for people. <laughs> and um, our our desire has always been, like even in hurricanes or, or anything, to be the, the last store to close and the first store to open because we really believe that people having access to food and supplies is paramount in them getting back to normal. So, you know, if we close a grocery store, that's going to rock a whole community. Uh, people at all walks of life need that. And so I think it really came from, we just want to help people. And the best way we know how to help them is through getting them their, their service, the goods and the services that they need in a time of crisis. And um, we did not wait 
or instructions or permission. We just started doing it and doing it very, very well. And of course, you know, logistics uh, is something that we have to be really good at. And I think um, over time, uh, we became recognized for it. And now the government actually calls on us or FEMA will call on us to help. And we are considered uh, first responders. Like we get a letter from the state that we can put in our cars so we can drive through barricades and all kinds of things because everyone yeah, it's knows. It's not self-designated. This is No, oh, well, it, it, I think at official. first we just did what we were doing. And mm-hmm. then I do remember back in like when Hurricane Ike happened, we had to talk to them like, wait y'all can't come through. And we're like, we've got groceries to deliver. <laughs> you know, we've got ice. And after a while, they start realizing that we could get it there faster than anyone else. And we were giving a lot of it away. So this was not for profits and not for sale. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things we were giving away to help people because these are our customers and these are also our partners. So that's the thing that's really um, different is that every partner that we have has a family. And that whole family shops at HEB. So if we're helping the community, we're actually helping our partners as well. Yeah, everybody and, relies on the grocery store. Yeah. So it has to be done. Unfortunately, we did not see that though from Walmart or Kroger or some of our competitors. Um, it, it was, you know, there, there was a different priority. Maybe because we are only in Texas that we, we were able to just, um, you know, put it together so much quicker. Yeah, a, a national rollout of that kind of, uh, uh, you know, community response is, it's more daunting, mm-hmm. but uh, Texas is huge. Yep. So <laughs> it's basically <laughs> a country. <laughs> um, has the pandemic changed how you use that first responder status uh, or is it just another crisis? We are using our same um, methodology for COVID as we have with hurricanes. I mean, hurricanes have been the big thing that we've gotten, unfortunately, really good at because there's been so many um, hurricanes hit the Texas Gulf. And so when when COVID came around, we actually just rolled it out in the same way. Now, we learned it wasn't the same. And we learned, learned a lot of hard lessons that you can't treat uh, COVID like a hurricane because hurricane comes and does a lot of damage and then it's gone. And then you spend months cleaning up the aftermath. COVID comes and then it just stays. And um, yeah. so what we learned is we cannot operate at that same pace. So when you're in a hurricane, I mean, everyone works seven days a week, you know, 15-hour days knock it out, you kill yourself, and then you high-five a couple months later. We were running a sprint, even mm. though it was a marathon. I don't, we did not realize we were in a marathon when we started. And so no, halfway did. through, I mean, there was a little bit of burnout. And, and of course, now um, COVID cases are even higher than they were when we first started this, when we were you know, kind of freaking out about everything. Uh, and so we really had to regroup and say, okay, how can we make this sustainable and make this the new norm? this is not a hurricane where you just pop in and you fix it. This is a sustainable issue that now will be in a year, frankly. And uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it hasn't come yet. So I think our hard lesson was we can use some of the same methodology, but we can't go at the same pace. We're going to have to have lots of backups, lots of interchangeable people so folks can get the opportunity to take a break. And then, of course, if someone becomes sick, then it's even more important that you have someone else who knows how to fill that critical role. I'm sure there are a lot of thankful people in Texas that are glad that you are uh, able to help them out and continue to keep helping them out because, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a long haul.
If you could snap your fingers and remove a corporate buzzword or phrase from the universe, what would it be? I would eliminate the word culture fit. The words Hmm. culture fit. Um, That is uh, probably the biggest justifier of, of using your gut and your unconscious bias. Because who determines what the culture is and who determines how you fit into it. Right. What are the metrics? Yeah. What is the metric for a culture fit? But uh, <laughs> it very easily could knock someone out of a promotion. Like, well, you know, she's really not a culture fit. Can you even train against that? Can you improve against that? Can you come back from that? If you're not a culture fit, you're, you're like dead on the line. Um, and it's so vague. And then, of course, um, in, a, in a truly impactful workplace, you want people with all different types of thought, um, different backgrounds. And if everyone fits, then that m- makes me think that now we have some group think going on because everyone thinks the same way, everyone fits. And, um, but people really feel good about saying it. I mean, they, they feel positive, mm-hmm. like, oh, that person has a culture fit here. But we really need to think about doing something different. And um, it's scary I don't think anybody intentionally means to do anything by it. But because I feel uncomfortable with you or I don't feel like you jive with the way that I'm going, now you're not a culture fit, that might be just the person I need on my team to help me think different. What's something about how your culture has changed in the last year that surprised you? I think I was surprised at how nimble we were with going more digital, more e-commerce, and um, embracing the, uh, the virtual work from home. I mean, it literally was overnight. And a lot of the, the negative feelings about it really did go away pretty quickly. And maybe it's because you're in a pandemic and you got to do what you got to do. But everyone rose to the occasion. And uh, the e-commerce we, we had going, and it was uh, a nice small percentage of our business. And like overnight, I would say our, our, it jumped like 20 of the percentage of our business. So if it was like 5 to 10% of our business and it was 25 to 30% of our business like overnight. And of course, we did not have the infrastructure for that, but somehow we pulled it off by everyone working really, really hard and um, focusing on that one area, even if that wasn't their area of accountability because the customer needed it. That's what they desired. And uh, we had to find a way to make it work. And there were some um, issues. Normally, we would not want to roll out any new platform without a lot of testing. And, you know, like I said, there were some crashes and there were some things that didn't go well, but we were much more nimble than we would have normally been with making those things happen and being uh, risk takers because we really didn't have a choice. Who's the best boss you ever had? And why were they so great? So honestly, I can say the best boss I ever had is the boss I currently have. Her name is Tina James. Um, she is our chief people officer. And because um, we've been around, all of us stay around here forever. She has actually been my direct supervisor for over 22 years. <laughs> I, I mean, so it's, and, she, and it's funny, when I first started working for her, she says, you're going to be working for me for the rest of your life. She did that as a joke. And I'm like, maybe you really meant that. Because <laughs> it's a long time to have the same boss. I mean, her role has changed. My role has changed. We've moved all different cities. But for whatever reason, I don't think we were trying to make it happen. She's always been my immediate supervisor. And I can say the reason that is, is because um, she really exemplifies a heart for people um, at the deepest levels. 
Um, I consider her a, a friend. So it's even hard when people say your boss. I don't, even when I talk to her, I talk about her to people. I never say my boss. I always say my friend, mm-hmm. Tina. And we talked about this. Um, we, um, she is um, extremely intelligent, of course, but is humble enough to listen and to let all of us be fully authentic in our opinions. So I've never feared um, disagreeing with her in public in a very, you know, forthright way. And I've seen her hold her ground. And I've also seen her say, you know what, you're right. And, and, and really listen and to continue. And I think because you, not, not just me, but I feel like everyone that works for her feels like you can really be yourself. And we are all very different. We learn that muscle that your idiosyncrasy or how you speak or are a different way that it's not a turnoff. It's actually something that I need to lean into. And so if you're disagreeing with me, I need to stop and think, okay, what is it that you're seeing from this situation that I'm missing? And she does that very easily, but that allows everyone to feel like I need to express my opinion and we're not going to have group think because I know what's going to be heard and that we all kind of get in the place of, okay, wait a minute, you and I are two totally different places. So that's a pause for me to think about why are we so different? Because um, I honestly believe here we're all going for the same goal. So if we all have the same goal and outcome that we're looking for, it's not that you're trying to get me or you're trying to one-up me or make me look bad. It's really, you have a different perspective. And, um, and at any one point in time, I could be wrong and you could be right. Or I could be right and you could be wrong. So I'm not going to back down. I'm going to continue debating and you're not going to back down. But we're also being in a situation to where we're going to listen intently to find out why is it that we're so, such in different places. And I think she cultivates that. She cultivates that healthy debate, the lack of competition, the sincerity of listening, and really wanting to get to the bottom of something. And then if we make a decision, it's not right. I've never seen anyone be held accountable for having to pivot, do something different. And we all say like, oh, we thought that was a good idea, but now it's not. And we pivot and we move on. There's no negative ramifications and people are, oh, you made that horrible decision. It's all about what are we going to do now? And that's something that um, I think it's a personal character trait that she has because uh, you have to be very humble to listen to your team and to change, to allow that type of atmosphere. So many leaders want to be the answer or be right or not want to be um, uh, called out or I don't say we call her out, but you know, not disagree in public. And so um, I think that helps our team be very nimble for us to be on top of our game that we have to always listen intently. And, and if I'm going to, you know, have a, a dissenting opinion, I better come with facts because someone's going to challenge me on it. And that makes all of us more prepared and it really ups our game. And it's interesting. I, I sent her something a couple of weeks ago and she sent me a note back saying, it's things like this that every time you do this, Malin, it makes me a better leader. Mm-hmm. And of course that made me feel good. But it also means that she's listening to everyone on her team as, as full contributors. And she takes that to heart to say, okay, I'm going to be better because of that. And then that's what we want it in turn be. So I'm, I'm not sure if that answers your question directly, but um, she gives us the freedom to be who we are and respects us for that. And also um, um, cultivates a culture of people being, being, being free to do that. Mm-hmm. Who are your heroes? My personal heroes are my mom and dad. For um, 
really all the sacrifices and work they put in to um, allow me to be, a, you know, all the, all the things they've afforded me. So my parents are remarkable people. I'm sure a lot of people will say that. I, I believe my parents were truly remarkable people, especially for the time they lived in. Um, they're both born in the 30s. So my, kid, my parents had me kind of old for, for that mm-hmm. generation. And um, they believed in education. Both of my parents are African-American and um, both had master's degrees prior to having children. And I think that's something that was really unusual for, for that generation. And especially for African-Americans, it was much more difficult. And some of the things they had to go through and um, the barriers to even getting that education. And then um, some of the barriers they had to go through with the education where people told them to their face, well, forget you have that because it doesn't matter because uh, you're black, you're not going to get that job. And how they worked in, and both of my brother, my brother and I, um, both have, you know, have had master's degrees, and have done well in life. And I think the foundation and the values that they gave us is really what allowed us to be as successful as we are today. Hmm. Who are your villains? A villain for me, and it can take the uh, many different faces, is that person who has the meeting after the meeting. <laughs> I cannot stand that. So if we're in the meeting and we're discussing something or debating something, uh, and you know you know these people, and then everyone's nodding their heads or being very quiet, and after the meeting, they have all these dissenting opinions, and they try to get other people on their side, and all of this politicking outside the room. Um, it just wastes time. It hurts the culture. It's, um, you know, it's... It, I think it's the detriment of anything you try to do with the, uh, with, with have a good culture and to be transparent with people. And I think it's uh, one of the, like the root of all evil in companies. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. What's the last thing you read that stuck with you? It could be a book, an article, a tweet. Um, Probably not a tweet. No, not a tweet. I, it, it, some tweets have stuck with me, but I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> um, I actually read, and, and it's been out for a while, but um, a Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, Talking to Strangers. Oh, you know, we had him on this podcast to talk about that book. Oh, really? Oh, yes, last season. That It was um, the way he explained how we have these misconceptions and misunderstandings of people was just fascinating to me. So I, I believed it. I mean, I was a believer of that anyway, but I, I did not articulate it that way. And I could not have done the research the way that he did it. But he put it in a way that really opened my mind in a way that can actually maybe articulate it to other people. So, I mean, if you've had it on there, he had so many really great real life case studies of how we have misjudged people based upon how we think their um, credibility is based upon mm-hmm. our inner thinking what good looks like. And I loved his analogy with Cheers. I mean, not with Cheers, with um, Friends, the, the show mm. Friends. And it talks about how all of your facial expressions, the facial expressions that they use, those actors use are like the universal. But when you really look at how we respond, it's not even in that way. So all of that was, I mean, I, I really probably should be a psychologist or a psychiatrist one day, but all of that stuff, how your mind works is fascinating to me. And he talked about um, Sandra Bland he talked about um, the Sandusky trial, um, Amanda Knox, and um, and deep dive 
really into a lot of the mistakes that the investigators made and how we looked at things and how very easily we can make such wrong impressions on people, especially people that we don't know and the ones that we're not familiar with and, and the detrimental results of that. Um, that, that, that book is going to stick with me for a long time. What does your ideal workplace culture look like? I think it's a place where all people can truly bring their full authentic selves and that whatever that is, is truly valued. And I believe the only way that it can be truly valued is if you articulate it. So, and, and, and that we build our teams based on balancing them out with all of these different um, ways of thinking, introversion, extroversion, um, backgrounds. And, but if you truly value someone's differences, it's kind of like I said before with the culture that I believe that Tina has created, you're going to stop and listen to what that other person is trying to say and get value out of it. But people have to first feel valued in order to feel comfortable, share that. Because there's so much pressure society can form and to assimilate. So how do you, uh, so the best workplace culture is where you can have a common shared goal, feel that you can be your true authentic, uh, true authentic self, that it will be valued and that it is valued, that it is something that you use as your competitive advantage, that you're, you're taking that morsel of something each and every person and, and utilizing that um, to have a better outcome and to make better decisions. Leland, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Is there anything you want to plug before we sign off? And I wish I had a book or something like that to plug, but I don't. Your I, upcoming book, 2023. Oh, oh yes. Go buy it. As soon as I write it, then you should buy it. <laughs> you don't have to plug anything. I just always <laughs> give the opportunity just in case. Um, Shop H-E-B. <laughs> there you go. Um, for everybody in Texas, go get something to eat. there you go thanks so much this has been great thank you I've enjoyed it now it's time for tangible takeaways where we take big ideas to the roller skating rink for their best friend's birthday party only to discover that even though she promised she wouldn't invite him Jimmy is here And now we're eating pizza in the corner by the Little Shop of Horrors pinball machine instead of limboing with the cool kids under the disco ball. The first is that in order to eliminate hiring bias, sacrifices must be made. Namely, discretion and autonomy. While normally positive parts of workplace culture, Discretion and autonomy are enablers of unconscious bias. Because liking people like ourselves is human nature. And without education and guidelines, most of us will default back to that nature. If we want to overcome nature, we need a little less autonomy, a little less discretion, and a lot more self-skepticism. As Malin says, you can't just trust your rearview mirrors. You have to look over your shoulder to see what's in your blind spot. The second 
is that the best way to gauge what your employee experience and your culture is really like is to get out in it. Obviously, that's a little tougher these days, but you can still learn a lot walking and talking among your leaders and teams, even if it's socially distanced. Look at how they interact with their leaders, their teammates, their customers. Surveys tell a story, but it's only one side. Make sure you're seeing your culture as a whole, from the inside out. The third is that with all this talk about Terminators, it's a good time to remind ourselves that even though Judgment Day never came, we should always remain vigilant for signs of Skynet. Whether it's inexplicable spherical holes appearing in the sides of tractor trailers, stone-faced cops wandering the mall asking people if they've seen a certain boy, or just a little extra sass from your Alexa. If you see something, say something. There's no fate but what you make. As always, this episode was written and produced by yours truly, with original music and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com. <laughs>